Hey there, you've just started this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. Dr. Martin Luther King said there was two Americas, one of prosperity and another of struggle. There has always been a dominant culture in America that imposes what the guardrails are to freedom, what is allowed to be accepted, and what is fought with hellfire at the perils of our jails. There's the half that lives within this dominant culture that's given space and expectation to thrive in however way that's been defined relative to their time. The other half outside that culture is made up of a multitude of segments that just as a dominant culture changes over time has changed as well. One of those uniquely American experiences is how those that risk life, liberty, and their family's security to better a cause of the many fade distantly into history while their legacies are left unknown. We forget how hard people had to fight against the status quo for something as commonly ubiquitous as a bikini top to be worn for stand-up comedy to exist, or for the purposes of this episode, for love to prosper between individuals that have more melanin in their skin. Here's a cornerstone of this series that I'm going to continue to build upon as we progress together. What is the emergent quality? When we step aside and look at something wholly, analyze the factors, and honestly engage, how did this that we're viewing come to be? What were the conditions that needed to be present initially, How did the right steps happen at the right time for this rose to emerge out of the concrete? Slavery is as old as we have time. That's a fact. For as long as humans have a record of cultural interchange, there's a record of slavery. Something that during the time of Jesus of Nazareth was thought of being so ubiquitous, it's absent from his teachings. But perhaps it was seen as something so unavoidable It's better to focus one's teachings on how to bring oneself to individual salvation rather than rage against that machine. Slavery on the Turtle Island, which we now label as North America, existed before Europeans entered the shores. However, it transformed into a truly global enterprise, iterated over and over again to increase efficiency, to say nothing on the ban of importing slaves enshrined in our constitution, and all the horrible effects that road to perdition caused. This is all something that both emerged from the time in which it occurred, as it was later shaped by the country that emerged with it. America's legacy with the diaspora that came from the continent we call Africa is incredibly fraught with suffering, ideology, and intentional ignorance. Whether we are comfortable with it or not, the culture of black Americans for much of their history was a result of the situations they were forced into and how they shape themselves out of it. It has given us as a species immense gifts, like the blues and jazz, to say nothing of poetry, literature, or leaders, of which much of our world as we see it is continued to be shaped by. The legacy and scarring of black history is American, even if this country, my country, was time and time again intentionally trying to cast them outside the dominant culture. Life is what we individually make of it in spite of our circumstances and sufferings. And a country is made up of what we collectively encourage to flourish. For as American as it is to be white and upper class, is it to be black and cast aside? The unique story of America is in large part due to the facets that exist opposite one another. It's American to be wildly rich as it is to be wildly poor in the same city, sometimes even across the street, 
or homeless on a millionaire's stoop. America is a story of blood and toil just as much as it is milk and honey. And for me, I won't have any idea where we should go if I don't better understand where we've been. My guest for this episode has helped me well before we met and started talking in a deeply intimate matter and helped me really understand and put a new perspective on the sufferings that the African diaspora in America has had to endure. Love flourishes in safety and frequently dies in distress. So what would happen to a group of people who have spent the better part of 200 years under distress? What conundrums, conflicts, and sufferings would emerge with that? Well, Dr. Diane Stewart has shed some light on that, along with wisdom through empathy and compassion. Dr. Stewart is a professor of theology at Emory University and author of an impeccable book I encourage you to add to your shelf, especially if this is out of your comfort zone or knowledge. The book is Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage. It's an incredibly intimate, personal, and historical work. I'm a person who tends to spend a lot of my free time reading some truly startling things in an attempt to better understand the reality I find myself caught within. But I cannot recall another time in recent memory where I had to pause what I was reading and finding myself so overwhelmed with emotion and an inescapable feeling of heartache. That book did that to me. But it's not all doom and gloom. And in the time when identity is front and center, I encourage all of you who hear this to dive into the book and encourage their own growth. My interview with Dr. Stewart covers a lot of ground from what is the definition of love, what emerges out of love, untold stories and aspects of culture that emerged out of slavery, the lasting legacy of it, and to put it lightly, constrained economic policies on the black community before ending with some thoughts on America as a Christian nation hell-bent on salvation. I thoroughly enjoy talking with her, and I'm ecstatic to speak with her again about life, love, and the pursuit of our own individual contentment. And with that, we got some music, a call to action, a bit of blues, and then my interview with professor and author Dr. Diane Stewart. As always, thank you for listening. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears.
All right, thank you very much again for, for joining and taking the time. So we have it, would you introduce yourself? Thank you so much, JR. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm Diane Stewart. I am a professor of religion and African-American studies at Emory University. Um, and I am originally from Jamaica. I'm an immigrant to America. I came here at the age of three grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. I've lived in several places, Massachusetts, New York City, upstate New York, and have been residing in Atlanta uh, since 2001. I, I haven't spent enough time in Atlanta, but I'm excited to go check it out soon. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I have a friend who just moved there and he's really, really liking it. Yeah. Um, so thank you again for your time. So I asked this question when you're, to any first time guest to just kind of get to know the person a little bit more before we dive into some expert topic. So what do you like to do that makes you happy? Wow. Well, the first thing I think about is enjoying time with family and friends. I'm, um, I'm an intimate, small gathering social butterfly. I love being in intimate, small gatherings and talking, communicating with folks, figuring out what is it that they need emotionally, personally? What can I give? Let me communicate what I need. I'm, I'm a very intimate discussion oriented person. So I love the company of family and friends. I also love walking. I love walking. I love breathing deeply while I walk. Um, and I've really been enjoying that lately with, with um, the pandemic. I mean, it's just given me time to do that, to go out and enjoy and experience nature. Um, I also love reading. I mean, granted, I am a professor, but I do. I, I do enjoy reading. And unfortunately, one of the things that is um, disappointing about my profession is it doesn't allow me to re read outside of um, um, many of the things I have to teach about and research as often as I would like to, but I do. And I also enjoy poetry. I've been writing, I've written poetry since about the age of 12 or 13. Um, and uh, as I've gotten older, I've written it less and less, but I still consider myself to be somewhat of a poet. Yeah, I, I appreciate all of those, all of those moments of happiness. I, I like that too. I, I like that you know yourself enough to know that intimate small gatherings is where you thrive. Yes. That, that's great. Absolutely. I also really enjoy walking and it's something that I feel like not enough people do. Right. What's your, who's your favorite poet? Oh, wow. I want to say Gwendolyn Brooks. There's so many. Um, Langston Hughes and Nikki Giovanni were really inspirational when I was growing up. For me, Lucille Clifton. I mean, those are the people that I really cut my teeth on and, and enjoyed significantly. Juan Carlos Williams. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoy a, a wide range of poetry, but those those folks from my adolescent days really um, inspired me and influenced me. Yeah, that's great. I feel like if somebody gets introduced to poetry at a young age, it tends to stick. It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed poetry as well. It's something I usually don't say that I actually try to keep writing poetry, but I feel like just like meditating, it's something that falls off and it's hard to get back up into. Right, right, exactly. Well, thank you. I appreciate for sharing you sharing that. Um, so I thank you again to your team to getting me a copy of your book. Um, so love is actually a topic that I find myself looking into quite a bit. Um, I think it's actually, it, it sounds corny, but I think it's, it's the truth. And I think love is the most important thing. Um, I think it's the one thing that binds everything in the world. Um, 
and they're, they're, I recorded an episode, it's actually going to come out after this one, but mm-hmm. um, where I make the claim that I think that love is really what binds all of the world together in reality itself, because, you know, without love, there's really nothing. Um, so I want to ask you, uh, what would you define as love? For me, love is a powerful pro-social bond. Um, love rewards love love generates love it's a generative force martin luther king jr called it the supreme unifying principle of life it's similar to what you just expressed actually right and i i agree with that but i also i also really like bell hooks's focus on commitment care knowledge respect responsibility and trust um Mm. This is the work of love. It's the foundation of love. It's the work of love. But it it, it is a powerful bond. I, I, I also have paid attention to um, what some of the biological anthropologists have been saying about love um, and what happens in our brain when we love. Um, when we fall in love, for example, when we think of romantic love. And um, in fact, someone like Helen Fisher defines it as an addiction because of the kinds of hormonal and neurochemical um, processes at work when we find ourselves loving another. And so it's a quite complex thing. But I, as a theologically trained scholar, I like to think of love and its positive effects. I like to think of love as a pro-social bond that we need in order to survive and in order to thrive as a human species. So it is the foundation and it is the unifying element um, that is essential for us to inhabit this world um, in a way that it will allow us to to continue to exist and to survive and thrive. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great, to survive and thrive. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, I, I also think that something that's often missed is that when people think of horrors in the world, they tend to think of them as acts of like evil or uh, subversive forces when typically it's a manipulation of love. And people are doing, you know, horrible things, usually in an act of love, even if it is one of selfishness. That's, that is fascinating, because that's exactly what I think someone like a Helen Fisher would say, right? Um, That because it's this powerful bond, um, because it, um, it is an addiction, is what she would say, right? Um, The the negative side of love can be jealousy, can be um, um, acts that might seem to be selfish, that might seem to be controlling. Um, and that can harm, that can ultimately harm other people like stalking, right? And and we know that intimate violence is one of the most pronounced forms of violence. Most people kill people that they're they're most intimate with. And so I, I, I think that in philosophy and theology, we might not want to think of those sides of love, but um, I think there are scholars in the fields of social science and science who would absolutely agree with that. Um, so yeah, but how do you get people to start thinking about love in that way? A lot of people are not prepared to hear that. Yeah, no, I, it's true though. And that's why I like John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. Oh my so God, I love it's that. It's not necessarily, yeah. Oh I had a moment uh, swimming in uh, in a bay in San Diego, not like a few, maybe like six months ago at this point. 
um, where I was just listening to a bunch of Coltrane and I went in the water and I kind of had this uh, kind of like uh, eureka moment where I realized that there's love, which is kind of what we're you know going back and forth with. And there's a love supreme, which is like a higher dimension of love um, that kind of supersedes this type of jealousy or, or even uh, wanting or even addiction and instead goes it to a higher level of selflessness and, you know, to steal from the Buddhists a little bit to end suffering, you know, and to bring us all to a higher, I mean, you can use like a higher frequency or higher dimension, however you want to label it, um, a higher order of consciousness. You know, I, I like that you brought that up because I often, when I teach, I have a course at Emory called Black Love. And when I teach about love, there's a place where we end up talking about suffering uh, versus sacrifice. And that's a... Mm -hmm tremendous distinction I make. I, I, I always say to my students that I see sacrifice as very important in love, but I see sacrifice as almost a privilege. You, you have the option to say, no, I will not. I will not sacrifice, but you choose to say yes. Whereas I see suffering as something totally different. There is no option. And, and especially when we talk about constructed or social sufferings, um, sufferings that are constructed structurally and systemically, there is no option. And so I, I see sac sacrifice as an opportunity to continue to express love. And I, I, I divide that, I, I separate that from suffering. I like that. I'm gonna think about that for a while. I really like that, the sacrifice yeah, I feel like it's easy to understand things when you look at them in those type of dualities and then try to find like almost like a, a square root to get out of it, right? right? To, to kind of bring them together uh, again. Um, that's a really helpful framework. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and, and I also think it's it's really important, especially to frame some more of the questions as we'll get into that, the kind of systemic side of things, right? Um, because... I, I'm, hopefully my listeners aren't constantly annoyed with me bringing this up again, um, but there's this really great uh, speech by this author, author David Foster Wallace, uh, in which he says, um, it's called This is Water, and essentially he starts with a parable um, where two fish are swimming along, um, and an older fish comes by and says, good morning, how's, how's the water? And the two fish keep swimming along again, and one goes to the other and says, what the hell is water? Um, and the point of it is that the obviousness and the obvious nature of the fabric of reality is often the one that's most overlooked and hardest to see. Um, and when it comes to systemic issues, um, especially systemic issues that have been used as ideological footballs and politics, um, I think it's incredibly, it's, it's harder still to go through that. And like just before we were talking about, um, you know, before we started recording, it's, it, it takes acts of one's own experience to be able to kind of burst the bubble and see oh, there is this other layer of reality around us, even though I'm not able to see it directly. That's right. That's right. I couldn't agree more. So um, I want to ask you, well, before that, what, so you wrote this book that I really enjoyed, Black Women, Black Love. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that you have that course at Emory. Is that what kind of sparked your interest into writing the book or, or what kind of sparked your interest in writing it and, uh, and publishing it this time? It actually did. Um, I I first taught the course in 2004, so it was a long time ago. Um, and other responsibilities um, between 
training grad students and wanting to um, offer a wide range of courses to my students um, just prevented me from teaching the course again until 2016. Um, after the killing of Trayvon Martin, um, many college students, many Black college students and others uh, were radicalized. I mean, they just, um, and I don't use radicalized in some sort of negative extremist sense, right? Or they call themselves being woke, so to speak. Um, and um, and they were uh, getting involved at Emory in all kinds of activist campaigns that were motivating them further, that were um, giving them a sense of purpose, but they were also burning them out. And I began to see, I'm a professor that is very um, student friendly. A lot of students talk with me and I began to see that there's need for a black love course again, because one of the themes we tackle extensively in the course is self-love. What does it mean to care for self um, in a nation that really needs help in learning how to develop a culture of love? And so initially when I taught it, and um, I never, thought of actually including a section on romantic love. I felt, I don't want people to not take this course seriously. I don't want people to come in and think, oh, I'm gonna talk all day about my significant other. Um, and my TA actually at the time, my teaching assistant, my graduate teaching assistant encouraged me to do that. No, you know, we really need to include it. And so I did. As I began to do research on romantic love, and at that point I was looking at heterosexual couples in particular, um, I was just floored by what I began to learn about love and the Black experience. But in, in, in reality, romantic love, I should say, coupling and, and marriage. And in reality, I knew these things, but I didn't know how dire the situation really was until I began to read. And so by 2016, I did more work and I included more um, materials on it. And all that time throughout the years, I had been thinking, I really want to write something about this because there was something in the literature that I was not seeing. While I saw that social scientists were giving great attention, really important attention to it and doing, you know, fine grained work on different aspects of what is impacting the black marriage market. Why are so many black women in America unmarried and even uncoupled? Um, and um, and I appreciated that it was very helpful to read that work. I, I didn't see any work that was really looking at it from a large, um, larger perspective, a long view, um, say from the days of slavery to the to the present. Certainly there were some historical perspectives, but nothing that kind of did a sweeping history of it and, and raised questions and identified the structural foundation of the problem. And I, and I saw the book as in many respects, a complement to the best kind of self-help um, material that might be out there and in some respects a response to some of the self-help material that might not be as helpful because when we think of love of course it feels very personal to us especially when we're talking about romantic love and coupling um but I, but i felt that whenever we 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 consider what's happening with black heterosexual women and their difficulties and delay and in many cases inability to find um pro-social healthy love and even to marry, um, we we tend to talk about it in terms of the personal things that Black women can do to make themselves more attractive and more appealing in the marriage market. But I felt that we weren't really getting at foundational questions that would allow us to change the landscape of love systemically and structurally. Now, it's a big task. It's like 
you know, really, are we going to be able to do all the things that I, I claim we should do? But we have to at least begin to have the ideas. We have to at least begin to talk about it. We can't do it if we don't talk about it. And that conversation was not out there from my perspective. So I, I would say that the class is the reason I really did end up writing this book. Yeah, and, and thank you for writing it. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I, from a, a background in data science and just kind of stats and, you know, having a humanities and a political science background, I understand like you can look at numbers yeah. and numbers can tell a story, but I don't think most people can translate that. It, it takes a really trained eye uh, and, and a lot of habit to all of a sudden have numbers feel it. Because I, I think as us as base homo sapiens, it's just, we're not right. We're not wired for numbers. Um, and, you know, a professor of misinformation and disinformation uh, at University of Buffalo, who I talked to, uh, Yotam Ophir, he, he brought something up to me and essentially is the power of narrative, right? Yes. And if it's a misinformation campaign, a propaganda campaign, um, or something is trying to draw, you know, do genuine social good, having a narrative to tie all those numbers together so that you're not telling the story of a digit, you're telling the story of an individual um, I think really seeps through and we can understand it. And I think your writing was impeccable um, and, and definitely got that point across. Um, there was numerous points that I had to put it down and, and I was tearing because of just the, the raw emotional connection that you can bring um, to somebody that, you know, 200 years ago, 150 years ago and, and relaying their experience with, you know, getting separated from their husband or going through, um, you know, post-Civil War times where, you know, there were these different types of, you know, relationships that we would see as, you know, polygamy almost, right? But it was a different, it was a different cultural emergent practice of what was occurring at the time. Um, and then seeing that, you know, as a, a sense of safety and community and family get ripped apart. Um, and then kind of the continual effects of the state intervention that rippled over time, over time, over time to get where we are, you know, I, I, you, you could have written it down or someone else could have written it down as bullet points. Um, and it, you know, maybe it would have been effective to, you know, a uh, policy wonk such as myself, but it wouldn't be telling this type of human story and connection. Um, and I think that it was very important. And I, and I appreciate that you wrote this. Yeah. I, I so appreciate those comments, JR. You, you, I resonate with them tremendously. I was trained as a theologian and theology is a very conceptual discipline. It's highly conceptual. Theologians wrestle with belief and ideas and thoughts. And we have this concept called armchair theology, you know, in my field that in many respects, you can you can write your books by just going to the library um, by just uh, now. It doesn't mean that that's not hard and difficult and engaging work. It absolutely is. And I respect the theological enterprise. But it's not surprising to me that I ultimately was drawn to ethnographic methods of research and historical methods of research. And, and I think you can see that come out in my work. And I say to my students, both graduate and undergraduate all the time, there's no argument that is more powerful than your story. There's no logical argument you can ever put together with stats, with numbers, with evidence, than your story. No one can tell you that your story is wrong your story is your story. And one of the things I try to do with this book is to have the stories come alive, is to show people the inner workings of characters, of personalities, of historical people who live, who were struggling against the odds and who cannot be fit in neat little stereotypes that are quite harmful, who are complex, 
who are working through stealth and whatever skills they have and through community life and, and bonding to overcome these obstacles to loving, not just pro-social romantic love, but family love, community love, personal self-love. And I'm so glad to know that that message came across very well for you. That was very important to me. None of the people I write about in this book is a stereotypical person. They defy those stereotypes. And, I, and it was my hope that their stories would help us to think about the periods of history that, that in which they were born and in which they lived differently through their through their lives yeah i think you did a great job like some of the characters or individuals that you pull from it really helps it helped me kind of step into that time and look left and right you know what i mean i feel like some some authors tend to write you know with the lens from for from where we are looking back where you kind of try to set the stage there um i can't remember his name and i apologize but there was an individual who got separated from his multi-wife uh, he had multiple wives and he had it separate and he was like writing every day to his one wife and saying like, please kiss, kiss the kids for me and all that stuff um, and tell them that I love them. And um, that was really powerful. And that was really hard for me to read because you can like see that he wasn't just expressing, you know, this, this, you know, uh, he was expressing a deep, profound sorrow and sadness that he wasn't able to do this. And yet at the same time, accepting this overwhelming sense of finality and, you know, uh, like he was just helpless. And it was it was so heart wrenching um, that I, your work in finding these individuals was was really, really powerful. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you pointed out his story because we 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 often don't hear about black men and love and marriage today. What are their feelings? Everyone focuses on black women. And certainly I did also. Um, my, my hope was, I, I'm, I'm hoping that someone reads this book, um, maybe a black male scholar or someone else reads this book and, and writes uh, kind of corollary for this from the black male perspective. Although many of my students have told me, you, you talk about black men's journey as much as you talk about black women's. You really do handle their journey as well. And so going all the way back to slavery, one of the things we find, and there's a great, um, great sort resource. I do cite it in this book that I would love to share with your audiences. It's Heather Williams' um, book, Help Me to Find My People. She has tremendous stories in there that show how Black men enslaved, valued their wives, their families, would do anything possible to keep in touch with them, even after being sold away from one another. Um, and, and so I, I felt that that story um, was so important to show that even though um, they had been separated and he had remarried, I want you to know that you and my children mean no less to me. It really, it, it really um, helps us to see the difference between love and marriage. That even, even the institution of marriage, right? That this commitment and this official um, recognition of the commitment through the institution of marriage doesn't in any way disappear, doesn't in any way smother out um, the bonds that I had to my first wife. Um, whom I was forced to separate from, and to my children, it it is it is heart wrenching. Um, I too um, teared up at several times as I was writing this book, 
much of this information was not new to me. Some of the stories definitely were, um, but the type of trauma and suffering, um, much of it was not new to me, but actually engaging their lives, engaging their thoughts, engaging their words, their experiences, um, their sufferings that were tangible and intangible um, was very painful, very painful for me. Um, it was it was difficult, a difficult right um, for me in, in, in many respects. Yeah, I definitely can understand that. The, the empathy though, and, and having to go through that type of molting uh, came across in your writing though. And, and it was, it's good that you can, you can feel the empathy. Um, so I, I, I've been like a lifelong musician and uh, my root is in blues. So you can't uh, learn blues and not learn about the black tradition and, and slavery and slave hymns and kind of all of that came out of this and this beautiful culture that really emerged out of it. Um, and you can't learn about that without learning why it took place in the first. And what that is, is you had, you know, individuals, humans, you know, homo sapiens souls that were snatched uh, and stolen and brought over here um, and were put into a um, grouping where it could be all different types of cultures from all different types of places and all different types of languages um, and were forced to, to, to live together, work together um, and endure together. Um, and I think the thing that is interesting and beautiful about us as humans is if you force us to endure together, a culture will emerge. Um, and usually the, the stronger the pressure uh, the, the sharper the diamond, if you will. Um, so what came out of that was, you know, this amazing slave culture in the sense of the music and kind of all of the, the everything that came with that, um, that you can still see croppings of, you know, in, in other places. But what I took from it this time and reading your book was you have a culture that comes out of it. And then after, after slavery ends, you have a new type of problem <laughs> that comes out of it in the sense that now that culture that you just created, we're going to constrain again, and we're going to constrain by law and by force. Um, and, you know, the, you're already forced into slavery. You know, you're, you're forced to shed your culture and your history. You have a new culture emerging, then it's shattered again. And it made me think that in, in each time and in numerous different ways, the state emerged new ways of constraining the black community um, and I'm, I'm gonna ask you this, do you think in this constraining, um, black women took a larger and larger hit of the, of the share of this unintentionally because, and as you talk and we can get into it a little bit about economic factors and things like that, that kind of continue that strain. Um, but would you, say, would you say that's a fair statement? I don't wanna say that's exactly a fair statement. And let me say why. Fine, go ahead. Um, you know, I never, I never knew that I would leave this book project feeling so sympathetic, so empathetic toward black men. I, I, um, you know, JR, there, there are a couple other people who've written about um, this issue from different perspectives. The Harvard sociologist, uh, he might be retired now, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Orlando Patterson, who's also Jamaican, um, of Jamaican descent, um, who wrote the book Rituals of Blood. Um, he, he talks about the damage that slavery and the social death that slavery caused, and that's his language, um, the damage that that did to, to Black men. He, he, he has a more damaged theory approach. And he really comes down hard on Black men 
and um, you know certain behaviors toward Black women um, in our contemporary moment. He shows what he he traces um, the history of that and what it's be what what it's related to. But he takes a very um, very critical and hard stance. And he's a Black man himself, so maybe he felt like you know I need to do this, Black man, you know you know, wake up, sit up, you know, start being responsible, start, you know, looking at this situation in a different way and, and, and um, participating with family and, and show up for your children and your spouses and your partners and what have you. And there's another author, Ralph Banks, he's a law professor at Stanford who wrote a book as Marriage for White People. And he also takes a pretty hard stance against black men. So by the time I started this project, I, I wasn't thinking that I would do that, but I didn't know how sympathetic I would end up feeling toward black men. And I think uh, late in the in the book, I think it's in chapter five, I say that we need to cultivate in America, a new empathy for black men. One that never forgets Zora Neale Hurston's adage that the black woman is the mule of the earth. So what I what I want to say here is I think because of how we are um, because of our embodiment as both Black and female um, in America, we experience a racist sexism. I like to call it a racist sexism in a particular way. And because of their embodiment as being both Black and male in America, Black men experience a kind of racist sexism in a particular way in America. And they're both, I think, equally equally painful and harmful. So I, I don't want to say so much that Black women bore the brunt of, of, of something, but I do want to acknowledge that with what both of us are experiencing, Black women, especially post-slavery, had to now experience um, the rise of patriarchal marriage in our communities, right? And and had to navigate and, and struggle with what that would mean for their relationships with their spouses and husbands and fathers and, and, and other male relatives. So I, I don't wanna say that I think black women bore the brunt of it, but I do think black women have been the backbone of producing cultures of love in our society and ensuring the wholeness, the integrity, and the success of our communities. And often, um, or let's say at times, without visibility and without the kind of acknowledgement that many Black male leaders in particularly receive, if that makes sense. You know, I think it's really important to investigate what it means to be raced and gendered as both Black women and Black men, and the kinds of structural oppressions we have faced as a result of that. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's more the the last point you said of the um, unheard part of it is really what I was getting at with that question of of asking it because, um, you know, I I've studied a lot of the welfare, the most recent welfare reform in the '90s, um, and that to me was shocking. Um, and I'm surprised it wasn't heard a lot about where. You know, if you were a single mother, there would actually be checks and, and calls to your house to make sure there wasn't a, a male there. And if there was, you know, you would get you would lose your benefits. Yes. Um, and then this, the social stratification and stress that that puts on an individual to me just seems uh, absurd in the sense of I couldn't imagine what that weight has to be. You know, you're already uh, being a single parent, regardless of your gender, has to be hard enough. But, um, you know, you were on Marketplace and I think Marketplace does a really great job of every 
um, every year around September, they say, you know, it's September 9th, which is the day that means that the average black woman has now been, has now worked a year and nine months to actually uh, make as much as an average white male in the same time period, right? Um, so that kind of voice tends to be lost. So you're you tend to, you know, on the whole, if we're going back to the statistics again, um, making less money, um, you know, having to raise children alone, um, and then you have either social constraints from government programs that are putting pressure on you, um, or cultural constraints of not having proper help, you know, or, or not having an individual in your life around to help you that a partner, and that could be because of any number of things, you know, um, like I, I spend a lot of time thinking because I've, I've experienced this coming from the Midwest of what addiction does to people and what addiction does to families, you know. Um, so I have experience understanding that. But, you know, having a community that has those type of problems, but also has, you know, uh, a an abject uh, explosion of, of criminality that is forced upon them so that, you know, it could be any number of emergent qualities of not having a proper economic situation, which I would say addiction is one of them, not having a community, which often leads people to addiction as well. Um, but you also have social constraints like, you know, uh, getting getting pulled over for a small crime effect, offense that puts you over the edge into a, a more dire situation from kind of rolling downhill. That's exactly right. Um, thank you for saying all those things. And the other thing I would mention too, um, and sometimes we don't think about it in, in these terms, one of the things I wanted to um, to share in this book is that Black women across class experience are wrestling with what I call forbidden Black love, right? These systemic and structural forces that deny or delay or make difficult pro-social healthy romantic love. Um, and so even for Black women who are middle class and even upper middle class, and especially in this time of COVID, I've heard so many conversations I've heard about, even through friends, Black women who are saying, are you kidding me? I wish I had children. I wish I could be a single mother, so I wouldn't be isolated by myself with no one to talk to. Um, or just um, what it means to be a professional where you are not just working at your job at, at, at the office, you're taking it home and you're working at it overnight. And to be a single Black woman, even with no children, that is a very, very difficult experience to carry all the burdens of what it means to deal with the microaggressions of, at work, you know, the racism in, in the structures um, at work, um, in America, in life. You know, you just want someone to drop you at the airport when, when you have uh, to, to leave town and you have no one to rely on. You want someone to pick up the dry cleaners. You have no one to rely on. Believe it or not, there is a lot of pain, isolation, and suffering even among middle and upper class Black women who are finding it difficult to couple and partner um, and to share life's burdens and joys with another person. Um, but certainly, as you say, poor and underserved, under-resourced Black women um, are still bearing the brunt of these policing and 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 quite frankly, harmful and um, and callous policies um, that um, shape um, our public life in in the United States of America. There's there's no doubt about it. I think I think one of the reasons we, I think one of the reasons we um, don't 
have as much public awareness about these things are has to do with the reigning myths. Um, and you talked about some of them, I think, even before we were began to record the reigning myths of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or America as this exceptional um, nation that offers opportunity to everyone. And um, the continued belief that because we've had um, certain kinds of legislative wins in the past um, that um, there's there's no real uh, legal barriers to equal equality of opportunity for everyone. And I think that those myths, even though we're chipping away at them more and more, I think in recent times, I think that those myths are still so powerfully grounded in every aspect of our culture, whether it's religious institutions, um, the media, school, um, family life, they're just powerfully grounded. I mean, let's face it, they're motivational myths. And even many immigrants who come to our country, compared to the kinds of opportunities and barriers they had in their 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 home countries, a lot of times they, they often play into those myths, right? Um, I was able to have so many opportunities uh, as I came to America, especially compared to my, you know, my um, autocratic nation that I came from. But in many respects, they are coming into a situation where they're not often understanding the history of racial and class oppression in America. And, um, and, and I think um, over time, some do come to understand that. But, but that's exactly right. And I think we also live in a nation that doesn't see, doesn't respect, doesn't um, um, honor Black women and Black women's contributions doesn't honor it. Um, and so this is why symbolic representation is important, but it can't stop there. And it can't be the only thing. I think one of the problems with us is that we 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 relax into symbolic rep re representation. It, it's, it's not okay. It is important, but it's not okay. Um, so, um, so yes, I, you know, I just couldn't agree with you more. I just wanted to acknowledge that in the area of love, romantic love, coupling and marriage, um, this issue of forbidden black love impacts black women across class levels. That's, uh, that's a great distinction, um, as is the distinction of the American myth building, because I think one of the truly exceptional things America has done is craft its own myth, which I think is something that um, isn't, isn't widely known enough. Um, there's actually a poet, Phyllis Wheatley, that I, I've, I'm quite fancy. Um, and she talks a lot about the myth building. Uh, well, she was a contemporary to George Washington um, and speaks a lot about a newfound Rome. I, I've been searching, I have a book of hers and I can't, I've been searching for several days of this one poem, but she starts it with newfound Rome rejoice. Um, and it really just goes into how America has intentionally crafted themselves as a myth of a new, a new Rome. Um, and you know, there's another author, Edmund Maloff, and he has this book in the name of identity um, and one of the central theses of it is, is what we do to craft our identity um, is most often in comparison to an other. Um, and, and if you are an immigrant to a country, you most often want to be seen as a member of that community. So there's no distinction between you and an immigrant. So uh, doing things like adopting the myths is, is a kind of a natural emergent quality of that, mm -hmm. um, which is something just like fish and water. I think we take all too for granted because you know, we don't see the myth of America um, because it is so interwoven in our discourse. And it's in, in my eyes, it's getting further entrenched um, unknowingly. That's but right. I think that 
I think the point about romantic love and, and all of that, and especially the institution of marriage is also a great distinction. Um, and to segue to my next question, you know, I think that you're, you're absolutely right. And I would extend of, I don't think this is my own musing, uh, my own opinion. I don't think in America, we put enough emphasis on family and family love and what that means, right? Like we put a lot, we praise the individual and, you know, I definitely think the individual is the only true path towards, I mean, I'll say salvation, but not in the, in the religious sense, but in like the freeing oneself of their own suffering and, you know, advancing their consciousness. Um, and I think that truly can only be done in the individual level, not the collective, but you need to have a safe place and a safe foundation in order to do that. Um, and I don't think the state could provide that. I think that is something that is an unwritten bond in our culture that starts at the family. Um, so I want to ask you this. Um, do you think that talking about marriage has fallen out of the mainstream? And if so, wh why do you think that is across the board? And then obviously it's, it's one that you give some really striking statistics as to and, and narrative as to why that is falling out with, with black women in particular. Right. I just want to be sure I understand the question, but that we're no, we're not talking enough about it or. Yes. Okay. We're not talking. Do, do you think that talking about marriage has fallen out of the main, the main zeitgeist, if you will? No. Yes. And, and no, I, I think there's been a lot of attention given to this issue of black women, not um, having enough opportunities for love and marriage since um, the national census reported um, those data in 2010. There's been quite a bit of talk about it in, in a number of public venues. And certainly it has been an unfinished, ongoing conversation in my personal life with black women, women from all walks of life, right? So college students, uh, my friends, family members, just, you know, meeting someone, you know, in a public place. It, black women constantly talk about it. I'll give you an example. My stylist was thrilled when she found out that I was writing this book. She said, it is the constant conversation in my chair. And she says, Diane, you know, I, I just have women who have just totally given up. They said, I, I'm just I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try to look. I'm not even going to try to to even hope or think that this can ever happen for me. So it is, it is actually talked about a lot, I think, among Black women. And, um, and in certain places uh, within the media, it has gotten quite a bit of coverage. But I think marriage itself has fallen out of favor in general. I think I think the institution itself, I think there are many Americans now that are ambivalent about marriage, that um, are suspicious of the institution. I mean, certainly feminist consciousness about the patriarchy embedded in the institution. I've certainly gone through my own sets of feelings about patriarchy, the patriarchy that seems to be intrinsic and that cannot ever um, be weeded out of marriage, right? Um, I think that certainly has impacted how a lot of women and even some men might be feeling about marriage, but certainly changes in our economy where people, you know, people just can't get a, 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 um, a, a strong and a solid start in life um, um, anymore to feel like they have enough stability to get married. People, I mean, studies show that Americans um, uh, consider marriage more when they feel that they're more financially stable. So a lot of young people are delaying marriage, for example. Um, 
And so I just think the institution itself has fallen out of, uh, out of favor, right? The culturally relaxed um, norms that we have now about um, being married forever, right? Divorce is much more in fashion. And let's face it, our attitude toward marriage has changed. It's so funny. Like when um, I um, have visited like 13 African countries and I've spent some time in a few of them, I first went to Nigeria when I was a college junior. And one of the things I noticed about African relationships in Nigeria and, you know, just other studies and other experiences that I've had is how communal they are. And what I mean by that is the typical college student relationship at the time I was in college, you know, when you, you fall in love, it's like almost you and me against the world, right? You're holding hands everywhere you go, you go to a party, it's like you and me, it's us as an individual couple. You know, when I was in Nigeria and we went to parties and we were doing things, like a, a couple might come to a party and as soon as they got there, they split. The, the woman went with her friends and the man went with his friends. You wouldn't even know who was dating. It, it, it was so interesting and, and just the way African cultures have so many different ways of socializing people into um, peer bonding groups and, and also especially by gender, peer bonding groups um, um, where people have so many different outlets for support and love and um and developing projects together that they can accomplish together beyond the marriage unit um and i think in america we have become so patterned in making that person that we choose to marry are everything are all they must provide everything for every need i have and if they don't if they can't we we're going to divorce. Something is wrong. This marriage is doomed. And, and, and I think that has harmed us significantly. So one of the things I'd, I'd like to see happen, as you said, is to talk about marriage and family, is to talk about the fact that marriage is built on relationships, actually bonding, actually experiencing life together and in community so that that relationship is supported and nurtured by a larger network. So I, I wish we could have more conversations about marriage and family together. Look, JR, I don't think marriage is going anywhere. I've talked to people who say, so do you think, look, you know, marriage is just basically going to die out and why do we need it? We can just decide to commit to folks. I don't think marriage is going anywhere. I think there are strong evolutionary reasons that marriage is not going anywhere, right? We need to form bonds of attachment in order to raise a human being for 18 years who's going to be pro-social enough to bond and have attachments with another human being to keep the species going. And marriage helps to regulate that. Marriage helps to provide norms that allow us to pass on inheritance, to care for elders and children. So I, you know, it definitely has its its drawbacks, right? Marriage at its worst can be a prison, a poison, a toxin. There's no doubt about it. But I'm about the business of how can we enhance it? How can we support it? How can we um, experience it in its diversity? How can we um, make sure that marriage and family are healthy for us? So I think it's more that marriage has fallen out of favor um, and, um, and our social institutions that 
um, prepare people for marriage um, need to be reinforced, need to be built on cultures of love so that we can have healthy young adults who want to marry um, or want to at least commit um, to spending their lives with someone else to provide um, powerful family structures um, for children. That's a very powerful response. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I think it's awesome that you brought in the evolutionary drivers because I think that that's true. I mean, there, there, there's if you label marriage marriage or you want to call it a different means or a different label, um, I think the requirement of it is still going to be there. And, and it doesn't necessarily need to be a, a heterosexual bond. It could be any number of stratification. Uh, its purpose is to create a bond and a family. Um, and what I would say, I, I, I say safety a lot because I think family is supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be your sense of comfort. Um, and it's supposed to be your, your source of a love supreme again, if I want to bring it back to that, um, of, of, like you said, relaying what is normal and what, relaying what is um, accepted. And, you know, I think some of the problems that we have in America that you highlighted are, um, you know, the, the commodification or the disnification of what we are, see as our culture, right? Art kind of reflects back and then the culture reflects back to the art. Um, and what I've heard from a lot of people um, so my wife and I, we got married and I think I'm the youngest person that got married of anybody I know. Um, and we got married when I was 27. Um, so, you know, that's in, in my eyes, you know, my parents already had several kids by that, that time and their parents had even more, you know? So um, to me, that was interesting. And one of the things that I, I hear a lot um, from friends, you know, both, both male and female is, you know, this expectation of a Disney love affair. Um, and that's not reality. You know, the, the reality um, and this is something that I bring up a lot, especially to my male friends is like, hey, man, you're going to have to stick through this and it's going to be difficult and it's not going to be easy. Like if you're getting into something, um, if you want to get into something that is going to be turnkey, you're not going to grow and you're, you're choosing somebody to grow with. And, you know, you need, yes, they, yes, they need to entertain you in a, in a way that makes you humorful. Yes, that's definitely a requirement. That shouldn't be the, the main one, right? You know, th definitely they should be, you know, smart and be able to have a conversation with definitely, but they also need to check you and they need to challenge you. Right. And, and that's something, you know, I, I don't think that we, because it's not created as much in our art, it's not something that we reflect back onto it enough. Indeed, indeed. Boy, I tell you, I reached for this book. It's my first book um, because I wanted to share with you the dedication I wrote to my parents. I wrote to my Go mother. Ahead. To my mother, Ruby Burroughs Stewart, and my father, Rodella Alonjo Stewart, you transmitted humanity to me. And for your vision, sacrifice, and protection, I honor you always. And one of the things that I talk in my book about the toxic inequality that African-Americans have to deal with, I actually coin a term. I call it inherited poverty and wealthlessness. I coined this term wealthlessness just to emphasize the, you know, that African-Americans for 10 generations had their wealth stolen from them. And the compounded impact of that can never be underestimated. We can talk for the end of the century and probably not get to um, get, get to fit the, uh, our conversation about the compounded impact of that. Um, and so I, I do actually, and this was a surprise for me, I do actually privilege building wealth as one of the most important structural actions we can take to support Black love, marriage, and family life. 
However, I don't want to give the impression. I mean, JR, deprivation is a horrible thing in the human experience. It makes people desperate and it makes them do things that are toxic. There is no doubt about that. But in no way do I want to convey that money is money produces love. In no way does it do that, right? In no way do I want to convey that a poor family cannot be a loving family. And this was the family I grew up in. And that's exactly right. I thought very carefully about this. My parents had vision. They made sacrifices. And we've talked about my view of sacrifice. And they protected us. They protected protected us. The, the strictness that I didn't understand as a, as a young child that I was, why is my mom so strict? I grew up to now know that was protection. And one of the reasons, even when I was so upset when my mom wouldn't let me do certain things or wouldn't, I never doubted she loved me. And I sometimes say I've learned so much from talking to my students that, JR, sometimes I feel like I can divide my students into and probably people, right, in general, into those whose parents showed up for them and those whose parents didn't. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And one of the things that I came to realize is my parents showed up for me. And not only did they show up for me, JR, they showed up every day. You know how hard it is to show up every day for a child? That's incredible. That's love, showing up every day and the other thing that my parents did, they never lied to me. I, I cannot think of a time that my parents ever lied to me. That's love. And you know what else they did? I always knew where they were. That was part of my safety blanket. If my father said, I'm going to the barber to get my hair cut, he was home in 35 minutes and his hair was cut. You know, I just, they, they, I always knew where my parents were. And, and you don't need to be wealthy to do those things, right? You don't need to be wealthy. I have, um, um, a, there is a, a, a Nigerian lawyer that I worked very closely with. He, he's actually the um, uh, former attorney of General Obasanjo, um, um, former prime minister, um, president of Nigeria, I should say. And, um, and he, uh, when I got married for the first time, my ex-husband um, had also worked for his law firm. We, it's called, and his organization called Human Rights Africa. And we had spent um, a summer there with two other interns um, working for him. And he couldn't attend, but he sent us a beautiful uh, letter that was read at the wedding. Um, and he said at the end, when you're choosing a partner, choose someone whom you respect. There are a lot of people who choose, who know how to choose someone that respects them. But the question is, do you respect this person? Choose someone who can improve you and choose someone who can represent you. And, you know, I say to my, my young women students and, and nieces, and I say, you know, we choose our girlfriends that way, or we choose our, our platonic friends that way, but do we choose our partners that way? And, and so, you know, these are the kinds of conversations I would love to have, um, have with others. These are the kind of conversations I think we need to have in a more culturally um, um, supported way, not just in therapy sessions, right? Um, <laughs> deep conversations about what it means to be a healthy person ready for marriage. You know what I learned from my first marriage share? I learned that people love you for what you do for them. I was even um, um, susceptible to that. 
it took that experience of failing at marriage really taught me and my, my current husband he teaches me this every day that love is freedom he tells me diane love is freedom love is allowing that person to be who they are and i think a lot of young people are in early in marriage they they we have been taught to control the person to want the person to be whom we want them to be to to want to mold the person influencing someone and molding them and controlling them into being whom we want them to be is different is is those are two different things and what does it mean to be ready for and to be aware of growth in a relationship what does that mean and so those are the kinds of issues that i think we need to be talking about when it comes on to marriage and family making space and making room so i totally agree with you family must be about safety and protection and we don't need tons of money to do it one of the things i i, I invite and i'm going to stop and let you come back in i invite a, um one of my colleagues um in the department of psychiatry and he works on neurochemistry as well and he um he talks about the neurochemical processes that are occurring when people love and one of the things that he shared with our class is that you don't have to have any money to look into your the eyes of your baby now there might be socio-cultural experiences that influence us that make us not want to look into anybody's eyes at the end of the day I, you know maybe there's something else to consider there right but uh, his point is, if we want to impact the hormonal potential of our children to be bonders, to be able to have empathy and bond with others, we need to actually play with them and look them straight in their eyes as babies. He says, you don't have to be wealthy to do that. Practice that. Share this with others. It's very, very important. I believe there's been studies done. It's not a, at, the, at my fingertips right now, but there have been studies done. I remember um, him telling us that um, when teenager, teenage girls and their mothers um, text, um, there are studies done about the kind of the dopamine dopamine levels that um, that are produced versus when they're talking in person, right? So, how has social media either impacted or impeded our ability to develop spaces where children are being reared to be empathetic, to learn what it is um, to connect and to bond? with others and to have the listening ear of an adult um to help shape them and guide them as they're as they're um you know wandering through adolescence so there's a lot that we can do without wealth but make no mistake wealth building is critical to changing the landscape of love and marriage for african-americans for people of african descent yeah that there's a lot that i'm going to unpack after we're done talking uh, especially, you know, my wife and I are, are planning to have kids at, at some point down the, the road. And I'm definitely going to think a lot about what you said about knowing where they are and, and all of that. That's, I think that's really important. Um, it's fascinating. You know, I'll plug this and I could put the, the study in the show notes, but my, my wife read in a study recently and was sharing it to me about the importance of just looking deeply in your child's eyes and the bond that you get back and forth in both, both the child and the parents. Uh, particularly mothers get a physiological response from that um, and, it, and it increases the relationship 
um, and children who have that grow up to be more empathetic, better communicators, um, and have lower rates of depression um, to a pretty staggering degree. Um, so I, I think that that's all very important. So Absolutely. soft things. Um, and, and I think it's important too. I think we, we value uh, wealth too much in America and we don't value wisdom enough, right? And, and I think, um, you know, there's, I, I, I've been thinking, I've been trying to remember her name this whole time, but William Wordsworth, the poet, uh, his sister wrote um, an essay once and it was essentially about how um, they used to get strawberries and the strawberries were very expensive. So they would only save up for it and get these strawberries every once in a while. Um, and now that, you know, he's a poet laureate and they had all this money, they don't seem to buy strawberries anymore. And when they taste them, it doesn't taste as sweet. Um, so, you know, I, I think we, we praise wealth and, and, you know, coming from a background where I, you know, I had uh, a lot of periods of abject poverty, you know, I can tell you that I, I never forget that um, even in my times of most comfort, because it, it allows you to be more present. It does, it, you do have to deal with more stress at the other side of it though, right? Um, but because of that stress, it sometimes breeds a, a greater presence. Um, and, and it's in that presence that it can teach you more wisdom, um, but it's all a pressure and that pressure can emerge in different ways. Um, and I think what you bring in, and you know, you can have this without wealth, but if you have wealth, you know, I said this before in a previous one, money is comfort. It's not necessarily that I, I strive to have money. I strive to have comfort and freedom. Um, and if you have enough money to have comfort and freedom, your life is going to be easier. Um, and I think a big concern of mine in COVID um, is the fact that so much wealth is disappearing again. And it doesn't seem like we have a plan to do anything about that. Um, while at the same time, my already big fear of what technology is doing to us and, and how it's shaping us back seems to be only further ramped up in this digital kind of landscape and continuing to go. So I think that all those points are, are, are quite pointed. Um, and I wanna ask you, so you say, I'm gonna quote you and then um, I'm gonna just bring this back again and we're probably gonna go over some other points again, but um, you're, this is the quote. Um, Marriage is shown globally to promote institutional, social and economic assets that enhance individuals and couples health, wellness and sense of satisfaction. Um, I want to add, layer onto it because of this conversation, two points. So one is if both feel they have the economic means to enter into that marriage, because I think that that's a good point. Um, and then if both have, both of the individuals step into the relationship with the right mindset, would you say those are, are, are good distinctions? Um, when you say distinctions, what do you mean? I want to be uh, Good points to add. So you, um, mar marriage is shown to promote all of these wonderful things so long as you enter it with the right economic and, and mental mindset. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think there are a lot of people who fear marriage too because they, they feel that they haven't had enough uh, models of, of what healthy, positive marriage looks, looks like. But we do have resources. And we're becoming, I do think slowly, a culture that's open to therapy. Um, we're talking about it more in the public domain. Um, and there are phenomenal therapeutic resources to help people prepare for marriage as well. And so I think that we should be encouraging young people to seek that out and to, to understand the difference between infatuation, to understand the difference between um, those beautiful feelings that we feel at the high moments of 
love and attraction and infatuation and what it means to get to know the fullness of a person um you know their their negative points i i've said to my my, my nieces and my nephew um you don't really know if you love someone until you fought with them you've got to fight with someone first because you've got to know how they fight do they go to a place that is so toxic that it hurts your person? Do you want to travel a road with someone like that, right? Or even if they do, but you care about them enough, are they open to finding resources to become a different kind of person who can't go there again, right? So I absolutely agree. But one of the things I think we have to stress in terms of going to it with right mindset is we need tools we need tools we need to equip ourselves and part of that is that wisdom we need to learn from our elders we need to um read right read resources educate ourselves right um, become informed about the tools that can equip us to go into it with the right mindset it's not just about a personal experience and and and, and let's face it those old um, um perspectives and perhaps you know perspectives outside of the united states like in africa and asia where you're not just marrying the person you're marrying the family and so what is that family dynamic like, right? We, we, we tend to want to focus on just the two of us. We, we love each other and we care about each other and that's all that matters. It, 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 it's hard to build a life that way. You, you can't ignore your in-laws. So I, I, I couldn't agree more, right? When marriage is healthy and it works, it does provide assets, but we do have to go into it with the right, right mind frame. And one of the key things that we must do to have the right mind frame is say, okay, how do I equip myself with the resources I actually need to learn how to be married? Because we do have to learn it. And the earlier we equip ourselves with it in the process, I think the more chances for success. That's beautiful. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, and, and something I was thinking as I was reading this is I think that, um, I think that overall American culture is in a lot of a decay. Um, and we're, we're stripping a lot of things away. Um, and because of the, the social economic policy uh, implications on the black community, I think that that community has, has fair, is seeing this all to a degree that, um, I, I, you know, this is just amusing. It, it couldn't even be right, but it's perhaps a canary in the coal mine of what could else be coming um, if this kind of keeps going. That's exactly right. Um, this is one of the reasons I'm so glad that some of the more uh, radical um, um, uh, activist groups have forced politicians um, in a new way to take on the question of reparations. And one of the reasons I say that, JR, is because you know, the more I think about policy, I think about American policies um, with respect to um, uh, addressing racial inequality and resource inequality for people of African descent in this country, um, I, I realized that our policies are often not based on the most accurate, the most honest history. They, they, they don't, they, they're not based on 
knowledge and information that digs deeply enough to get at the foundational problem, the foundational issues that have caused these gross inequities. And, and I think the reparations conversation is the only conversation that will allow us to do that. Now, how we would handle it, how we would, we would um, go forward with it, you know, that's an extensive um, conversation, right, with many multiple moving parts. But we have to have it um, in order to, to develop better policy and policy implementation. Um, so you, you, you could not be right. I mean, uh, there, there is um, what, when there was um, something that was always said that when America catches a cold, um, Black America gets the flu, you know? And I know some people have said that about America versus Africa, you know, as well. Um, I think you're right. There is so much decay. Um, and in some respects, there are many Black people who would say that there's always been decay, right? There's always been decay for a large, a significant number of Black people in the American population. Um, and are we going to create policies that allow a few to slip through a door of opportunity? Or are we going to really create policies that address the fundamental structural problems that have literally shifted people from slavery to sharecropping and peonage debt slavery, if we, if you will, to um, um, public housing projects that um, rob and deprive people of all kinds of resources, to um, the prison industrial complex, to whatever kind of life they can salvage after mass incarceration, after those experiences, if, if, if it ever ends. Um, are we really going to think of the least of these when we think of our policies when and not just look to a few who are slipping through um, who have already been um, poised to make it through that door of opportunity and see that as evidence, you know, so I, I, I couldn't agree more um, that we need to take a long hard look at black people's involuntary presence in this country and the implications of 246 years of enslavement and more than 100 years of um, segregation and um, um, policies that were white supremacist and, and racist that have harmed Black families for generations and that will continue to do so. Um, we need a new, a new approach, a different approach um, to policy. And um, we need to see love implemented through structures of governance. I, I really believe that. We need to see love implemented through structures of governance. And I don't know, JR, I honestly don't know what we need to do to, to cultivate love for Black women, Black men, and Black children in this nation at large. I, I started to point to some things, but what I mean by that is that, that that deep sense that you are my neighbor, that you are my sister, my brother, my friend. You are a valuable human being that I can't afford to lose. That stumps me. I, 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 I don't fully know how to do that. But I do know that when people interact with one another, 
and have chances to know one another in substantive ways, that is a starting point for change. I do know that. I, I, I do believe that. And because we're still in so many respects, such a segregated society, um, we, have, we have serious obstacles um, before us um, that, that, that would make creating a culture that allows for black people and white people and other people in America to get to know one another in substantive ways. Um, we, 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 we're not a culture that even encourages that yet. Can you believe that? In, in 2021, we're not a culture that even encourages that. I mean, I, I will tell you, I directly looked for a black neighborhood when I was deciding to move. I mean, I, when I moved to Atlanta, I moved to a black neighborhood, but I deliberately looked for a black neighborhood when I moved two years ago, because I, I believed I would feel, I felt safer. I mean, the kinds of things that have been happening in our nation in the last 10, 12 years are extremely disconcerting. And I just felt like I'm afraid of white America. There's a part of me that is afraid of white America. Um, and it was important to me um, to have the protection of a black community. Um, and so what does that mean, right, JR? What does that mean? So yes, how do we get America to love black people? That is, that is the quintessential question. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, I can't remember the economist, but somebody said that every action is a reaction. Um, and I think that's a good point because it's not necessarily that we're doing policy or, or whatever it is we're going forward as coming from a place of, I'll say it again, wisdom. We're doing it as a reaction to something else. Um, and we're having some means to do it going forward, um, which I think to the greater point that you're making is if we have a sense of empathy, understanding and, and shared humanity, and we use that as a basis, it shouldn't matter what anything you are, right? Any, any level of ancestry, ancestry or identity, um, we have a, a, shared, a shared space. And um, it's unfortunate that, you know, it's the day and age that we are and we, and we can still, you know, you as yourself can say that you're afraid of white America. And, you know, I'm afraid of white America, honestly. I'm afraid of what's, where it's going. I'm afraid of what's being allowed to be seen as a cultural norm um, because, you know, you can read like Alexander de Tocqueville's uh, Democracy in America um, and the biggest striking thing that I took from it when I reread it not that long ago was he spends most of his time talking about the only reason that this works is because of this culture that's here, right? And, and the only reason that that happens is because of what is unwritten um, within all of that. So it's really in those unwritten spaces that you can move a culture forward, you know, and I, which is why I think it's important that you're talking about that you know what you talk about in your book even from phenotype and, and phenotypic stratification and things like that like that like i was reading it and it's just because of you know i i feel like given my identity i don't have any space to bring that up in a conversation but and i was feeling uncomfortable but those it was good for me to feel uncomfortable because what as i'm reading it i'm like god this is true like this is absolutely true and this needs to be brought up um and you know going forward in the world you know like in 2020 it's amazing that we're still seeing this, but um, I would say that, you know, we're probably only seeing it because of social media. It was always there, right? Yeah. And I, I think social media is radicalizing us um, into these echo chambers 
And I think the economic inequality across the board uh, of, of identities is making all of these pressures and this, this, this cauldron bubble up more and more and more because people, when they're backed into a corner, are going to look for somebody to blame and something to fight. Um, and I think that that is becoming more dangerous, especially with these algorithms and whatnot. Um, but I, I think you're right in what you said is, you know, if we can have empathy and understanding and, you know, if we can have that as our space of making policy or even just communicating and understanding each other. And instead of saying like, you know, labeling somebody for something they may have said or something they may have done or any situation that they may find themselves in, you know, sitting down and, and saying like, what's happening? You know, why did why did you do this? You know, what's going on? Um, because, you know, if somebody is, is, you know, I saw something in the south side of Chicago of somebody was walked into a, a store and they or a restaurant and they said, you have to leave if you're not wearing a mask. They came back and they robbed the place for food. So, you know, like, what does that say? That, that says that the individual was desperate. That individual felt like they were being silenced and being ignored and they were being told, you know, like, you have to do one more thing. And they obviously had the money to buy it, but they chose to come back and rob it. Why? Well, that there's they're making a statement, right? They're making a statement because they're backed into a corner. And if we lead with that, maybe we can be better. Um, and, you know, this professor I talked with a while back, um, Professor Fran Bundman, she said something to me and she, she studies uh, the criminal justice system. And she said that, you know, when your, your penal system is a reflection of the culture they're in. And I think that that is a an, an very important point because we don't have, you know, and I think, like you said, the least of these, right? I think it was, I may be getting the person wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Victor Hugo that it was essentially said, if you want to judge a society, judge how they treat their prisoners. Um, That's right. Yeah. And I was just going to say Nelson Mandela had certainly emphasized yes. well. Mm -hmm. Yes, because if you if you are treating somebody who is wrong and, and did something wrong, you don't have to, you know, the same thing, two, two opposing facts can be exist at the same time. This person did something wrong and they should have some type of recourse for what they did. But also we should probably make it so that doesn't put them in a situation to have that happen again instead of casting them aside. I, I, I so appreciate that. I really do. Because one of the things that um, has come up um, about the book um, in some places is, you know, am I, am, I, am I basically putting all the blame on the system? You know, where does personal responsibility come in? What, what, what does that mean? And I, in many respects, I, I think I need to have different kinds of conversations with different audiences. I feel that internally, when I'm having conversations with Black audiences, um, I, I always have to talk in some respects about personal responsibility and personal power. What can we do despite all of these systemic and structural forces? How can we find the resources, the internal resources and external resources, no matter what, to make a way out of no way, as African-Americans often say, right? The way ancestors did with even fewer resources. Those are very important conversations to have. But one of the reasons we're still in the situation that we're in is because we're not adequately addressing the systemic forces. And I love what you just said, because that's that's the point I want to make, JR. It's not to say, you know, Black men should be let off the 
the hook for just totally abandoning their children when that happens, right? Because we also have to acknowledge that the images and the, the tropes that we don't see are the millions of Black men who don't abandon their children, who are serious caretakers in their children's lives, right? Um, so we always have to be aware of that, the other story that we're not seeing. That, that's one of the things I loved about my interview with Zion. I mean, just a Black man who's really trying and, and, and welfare, the welfare policies of today are, are just inhibiting him and putting barriers before him everywhere he turns. But, but one of the things I really wanted to get at was if the systemic and structural forces were not so insidious, not so ubiquitous, not so callous, we wouldn't see as many Black people as we're seeing making these desperate antisocial and toxic choices. That's the point, that when people have love, have community and support, have opportunities, have healthy um, reinforcement and affirmation, they're not put in positions to make as many antisocial, selfish, or desperate choices that harm themselves and harm others, and that have rippling effects for generations, even beyond their own families. That's what I would like people to focus on, right? Not just, oh, look at those bad, amoral choices, immoral choices that this person is making. What's to say you and I wouldn't do the same thing in that situation? And so that's what I would like us to, to, to give some attention and some focus to. How do we, how do we police differently? How do we, quote unquote, I would say, how do we correct and rehabilitate rather than punish? How do we correct and rehabilitate differently? You know, a good example from, um, is the, um, um, the R. Kelly situation, because I tell you, I watched every episode of I think the first um, series that came out on Lifetime and the second one that was on, I think it was on Netflix, I can't remember. Um, you know, it's hard to raise these conversations, but I say to people, because I'm, I'm very passionate about um, um, issues that have to do with incest and sexual abuse, particularly of children and women, anybody. Um, what set of circumstances created R. Kelly? It's not to let him off the hook, but we need to understand how did he become this way? How did he become a sexual sadist? How did he become um, a, a child abuser, a child sexual abuser? I, I need to know his story. I want to know his story because we cannot, he cannot heal unless we know his story. And I know it's hard. It doesn't mean that we ignore the victims. We, the victims need to be center uh, at the center stage at all times. But how do we actually help the perpetrators of sexual abuse, sexual violence and incest? How do we actually help them become in touch with their own humanity? How do we help them heal? And so for me, that is just as important to the health of our society as it is to pay attention to, to believe, to honor, and to provide resources for the victims to heal. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I, you know, yes, it, it does. I'm upsided, but we have to ask, what's the next step? How do, we, how do we create the conditions to not produce people 
who will end up making these kinds of decisions that harm others. That's, those are the conversations we have to be having. Yes, that's inc I think that's incredibly important. And one that I don't think that we are as willing to do because personally, and this is no, not a knock on any religion or Christianity, I think it has to do with uh, a Christian legacy that is interwoven with America that once again, like the myths, we don't realize it, which is, you know, we, we say that we want to restore people, but we want them to restore because of their own surrendering to whatever it is that is their salvation, as opposed to saying, I want to get to know what put you in that situation to bring a gun to come back and rob for food or to put yourself in a situation to completely disregard a child of which you are abusing, right? Like what, what, what were the conditions in the laboratory that what emerged out of it is the person that's sitting in front of me, right? And I think that is such a more important way of thinking and, and viewing it because that is going to end that type of situation from going forward, right? Um, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I think you're right about this Christian story. I mean, I often say to students, I mean, the, the, the common Christian slaveholder knew, could rely on a doctrine that allowed them to get up on a Sunday morning, go to the auction block, purchase an African, um, work that African to death, and um, repent to Jesus and go to heaven. You know, um, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. We can't um, extend these avenues of cheap grace that cheapens Christianity and the Christian message, but too much of popular Christianity lacks, as you say, the moral wisdom of some of our greatest theologians, some of our most profound theologians. And, and so you're absolutely right. I have seen this myself. Um, you know, I think um, having a healthy and strong spiritual life is also important to our human thriving, whether it's breathing and vivifying the, the earth and nature and others around us um, in communion with other forms of life, or it's um, participating in a religious life and um, society of a religious institution, I just think having um, um, strong spiritual resources is important to our thriving as well. And, um, and I've seen that, you know, particularly some some forms of evangelical Christianity um, that rely on a very powerful experience with the salvific Christ. Um, and then one forgets everything from the past and is born again. And this born again experience, that powerful experience is supposed to be enough to warrant a Christ-like or a life, a Christ-like life and walk for the rest of one's life. We can't um, forget the past. We can't just say Christ erased all of that. We've got to grapple with it. We've got to deal with it and, um, and become whole and become healed from toxicity and trauma in our past if we're going to move forward and be um, healthy and pro-social. So I, I agree with you. I think too often popular Christianity um, loses connection with the substantive teachings and wisdoms um, that some of the um, most um, um, influential and um, prominent um, 
scholarly theological thinkers um, have given the tradition. And it's too bad that there's such a disconnect with the person between the person in the pews and those often, you know, academic forms of theological writing. So you, yeah, no, I don't, I don't see it as a put down. I think um, any tradition, any religion has to be self-critical in order to grow, in order to um, um, meet people where they are um, in new times. Um, theology has to be done and redone for every age. And I think what you raise is, is critical for church communities, for individual Christians, um, for the nation, as you said, to consider. Even though we, you know, we supposedly separate church from state, um, Christianity, Protestant Christianity um, in particular, is um, intrinsic, is woven into the fabric of American culture and life. Yeah, and, and even explicitly, like I think today as we're recording this is the prayer breakfast for Congress that Nancy Pelosi is holding. So uh, um, we can we can say as much as we, we do about uh, separating church and state. Um, I, I would like it to be more, to be honest, because I would like it to be more of a reflection back onto a community and our own sense of, of uh, love and, and wisdom um, so that it is more inclusive. So it isn't just a certain brand, but you know, it, it's, it's woven in there a lot more than we, we accept because we've accepted a norm in which it's there, but we don't talk about it. But That's thank right. you very much for your time. I want to make sure I get you out of here at, the, at a decent moment. Is there anything else you would like to add? I, I really appreciate your time. This is inc incredibly illuminating for me. I, I've just thoroughly enjoyed um, talking with you. I think you are raising um, some of the most important questions that individuals, families, communities, our nation at large need to be reflecting on. Thank you so much, JR. Yeah, and thank you. And thank you for your authorship and, and your time. And I'm, I'm looking forward to see what else you're, you're writing and other appearances you make in the public. I think your message and, and the way that you're presenting it is, is impeccable and couldn't come at a better time. I appreciate it. That, that response, and um, I look forward to perhaps um, having more time to talk with you in the future. Oh, I was going to ask you after we stop recording. So yes, I would love it. <laughs> great, great. Thanks. And I followed her to the station with a suitcase in my hand. Well, it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell. And all your love's in vain, all my love's in vain. When the train rolled up to the station, I looked her in the eye. When the train rolled up to the station, and I looked her in the eye. Lonesome, I felt so lonesome, and I could not help but cry. All my love's in vain. When the train it left the station, with two lights on behind. When the train it left the station, with two lights on behind. light was my mind, all my love's in vain. Ooh, Willie May.